This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. When I took my first breath, my world was born with me. And when I die, my world will die with me. This is from Koso Uchiyama's Opening the Hand of Thought. And somebody asked me last week about this quote and said, what does this mean? When I took my first breath, my world was born with me. And when I die, when I leave the world, the world will leave with me. which has to mean that this world and I are co-creating ourselves, moment to moment to moment. And if you think about it, it raises an interesting question because if in Zazen, we stop creating, however briefly, does that mean that in the depth of stillness, the world ceases to be? And if that's the case, what does that mean about the world? And what is the world? And if the world ceases to be when I created, what does this mean about me as the creator? And if I'm creating a world and you're creating a world, are these the same or are they different? I was reading about a theory in quantum mechanics. It's a, it's a relatively new theory called cubism. And it's actually spelled Q, capital B, ism. And it says that essentially that reality is subjective that there's nothing that exists independently of my individual personal experience and interpretation, which is the opposite of realism, which says reality does exist regardless of my interpretation of it, regardless of my own existence. And if this is true, if cubism is true, and really what Buddhism says is true, if I'm creating a world and you're creating a world and they are in some way different because we are different beings, how can these worlds exist simultaneously? Right? What's, what's their meeting point? And I was thinking, I was remembering those Venn diagrams you know, in school where you have these circles. And I was thinking, so maybe a healthy relationship, romantic or otherwise, 
is that 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 slice right that meeting point in the intersection between those two sets those two circles and and in it is are, are all the things that we have not just in common but that are our world our shared world and everything outside it encompasses all the things that I need to work to make space for about your world, right? So in order to live together, I have to find a way to accept or at the very least make space for everything that is outside of my world. And so maybe practice is really drawing a circle around those two circles or five circles or a dozen circles. It's, it's, it's containing the whole thing or getting rid of the container. And if you think of, of our trajectory as human beings and how we view the world, we there has been a, a pretty consistent, I would say, movement towards realism, towards rationality and empiricism, and not just in science, you know, but also in religion. Um, I've been speaking a little bit about secular Buddhism because I've been reading about it. I've been speaking to people who practice it. And it really is a movement away from mysticism, from metaphysics, from anything that we cannot measure that we cannot prove with our own experience within the teachings. And, you know, in itself, that's not unreasonable. In the age of fake news, of alternative facts, in a time with, where there is so much misinformation, I don't think it's unreasonable for us to crave some solid ground to want something that is true, that is verifiable, right? Something that I can rely on when everything else seems so unreliable and seems so uncertain. Something that doesn't depend on my beliefs, on my feelings, on things that are constantly changing. But then how is it that someone like Uchiyama say with such conviction that the world is born with me and that the world dies with me. And isn't that a very me-centered view? And that can't be what he means. And so what does he mean? Which world is born and dies with me? And if you take, you know, just a single thing of this world, you know, this cushion that I'm sitting on, for example, I mean, it, it exists. No question about it. I'm sitting on it. And I would argue that the question is not whether it exists or not, but how? How does it exist? And why should this matter to you and me? Beyond a philosophical exploration. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above, and it was so. A well-known story, an oft-told story across not just one, but at least three traditions, a, a creation story. Except each one of us also has a creation story, usually more than one. And based on these stories, our world comes into being. In the beginning, God created me and you, your wants, my hopes, your silences, my words. Words, uh, worlds that collide often, but not always, and they don't have to. Right? And we know that. As practitioners, we know that. I was listening recently to a podcast with Ocean Vong, and I was struck by his magnificent use of language. That's really the only way to, to describe it. And I would say that he is careful to the point of reverence about how he speaks. And he said, you know, we say the future is in our hands, but really the future is in our mouths. And what he meant was that the future is in our words, in our stories. And I would say this is true both for the spoken word, the written word, but of course also thought. Because we're telling stories all the time, all the time. And once again, when we take a step back and we sit down and we turn in and we stop telling a story, then what kind of world is that? You know, and, and in this very well-known creation story, there's a single being, male being, bringing the world into existence, dividing dark from light, the waters from the waters, woman from man. But really, who is God? What is God? There's a koan 
about that that says, um, when the world was created, what was God, the creator, like? And of course, you could also ask, well, who created God? And there's a number of creation myths. And, you know, the, the Aztec myth, for example, is really, it, it's, it's all conflict and violence. The earth goddess, Cuatlicue, was sweeping a temple, and then this, this ball of feathers falls on her, and she miraculously gives birth to Huitzilopochtli. I mean, I can't even say it, and I'm Mexican. It's a lot of vowels and Z's and L's and um, Nahuatl. She gives birth to Huitzilopochtli, God of the Sun. And she had given birth prior to him to 400 sons who were the stars and a single daughter, Koyolshauki. And for some reason, she becomes enraged when she finds out that her mother is pregnant. She didn't mind the 400 before, but for that, for some reason, the son, the son, son, she minds. And so she convinces the other 400, her siblings, to kill mom. And as the, the, the battle is beginning to rage, Huitzilopochtli uh, comes out fully formed, like the Buddha is, was said to come out fully formed from his mother's side. And he comes out sword in hand fighting. And he cuts off his sister's head throws it up into the sky, and that's why we have the moon. And I was really feeling that as I was reading this story and, and feeling that creation coming out of destruction, right? Coming out of conflict, coming out of jealousy. And then I thought, well, this isn't just a myth. Now think of a time in your life when that was true, when something came out of death, of destruction. A time when something was destroyed, perhaps irrevocably, making room for something else that until then was unimagined. And of course, the pain of that and in one sense, the wonder of that. And then I was thinking, well, it is here in the unimagined that we deal, we Buddhist practitioners. It really is in the unimagined, the impossible that we move and create. And that's really what I wanted to stress today, what, what I wanted you to, to get excited about. I, and I, I think I'm, because I am unapologetically, um, at first I was thinking, well, kind of heading a crusade, but that's just not a good word. Heading a campaign, maybe a, a yes, a campaign to bring back 
the mystical into Buddhism. And I don't think I, I have to. There's, there's, it is in plenty of, of places and ways of teaching. But there's many, many more where that really has been excised, where it is seen as not relevant or necessary. And I beg to differ. Earlier in the week, I wrote that for Bodhisattva vows, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha way is unattainable, and I vow to attain it. And these were not always written like this. Prior to sixth century in China, these were very closely tied to the Four Noble Truths. I gave a talk about this some years ago. And, and they read like this, I vow to enable people to be released from the truth of suffering. I vow to enable people to understand the truth of the origin of suffering. I vow to enable people to peacefully settle down in the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. I vow to enable people to enter the cessation of suffering that is nirvana. And how the Buddha himself spoke about the Four Noble Truths, he said that the truth of suffering is to be understood. The first one. The root of suffering is to be abandoned, thirst or desire. The third is that the cessation of suffering is to be realized. And the fourth, that the path to the cessation of suffering should be practiced. And in fact, in the early sutras, they're not called the, the Four Noble Truths. They're called the Four Tasks. Right? There is something that you need to do to understand suffering, to abandon desire, thirst, craving, to realize that you can put an end to suffering, and then to, to walk that path, right? to, to make it real. Now, is this true for you? Do you think it's actually true, it's actually possible for you to put an end to suffering? Someone asked me recently why I use the word liberation as opposed to enlightenment. And I would say, because recognizing the power of words as well, I, I use the term that most directly expresses what I want. I don't want to suffer. I don't want you to suffer. And so I'm doing everything I can to live my life in such a way that you and I will be liberated. And that's really ultimately what I want, liberation. You know, in Thich Nhat Hanh's wording of the four vows uh, is, is characteristic of him um, much more directive. 
However innumerable beings are, I vow to meet them with kindness and interest. However inexhaustible the states of suffering are, I vow to touch them with patience and love. However immeasurable the dharmas are, I vow to explore them deeply. However incomparable the mystery of interbeing, I vow to surrender to it freely. That's an interesting one. I vow to surrender to interbeing freely. But they seem so much more doable, right? Not at all impossible. And I would tell the story how, how Daito Roshi would say it was, it's, it's their very impossibility that gives them their power. Sentient beings are numberless. It's impossible to save them all. But I vowed to do it. Desires are inexhaustible. It's not possible to put an end to them. Infinite dharmas, boundless dharmas cannot be framed. How could you master them? And the Buddha way is unattainable just by definition. You cannot attain it. And as he would speak, he would just get more and more riled up and he would get louder and louder. And then he would just burst into song. Man of La Mancha, the impossible dream. And he would say, it's impossible, and I vowed to do it. It's impossible, and I will do it. You know, with, with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my being, with every ounce of my intent, my courage, and my energy, I vowed to save, to end, to master, to attain. I vow to do the impossible because the possible is too small. Because the possible it was, is what has you and me trapped and always has. The possible is the mind that hustles. That this, this never-ending grind, work, consumption, pleasure, pain. The possible is the mind that says, I can't, I won't, I'm too busy, tired, scared. The possible is the system that holds up samsara. And that is why I feel we need the impossible, the unmeasurable, the unexplainable, right? Why we need a new system. I've spoken of um, Cynthia Bourgeau saying we need a new operating system. And the thing is, you know, more and more thinkers who don't necessarily see themselves as religious are understanding that as well. I don't know if, if, if any of you listened to that podcast on being with uh, Krista Tippett, the most recent one, and Travian Shorters, right? He's a, he's a, she calls him a visionary, social thinker, um, originally a tech person, 
And he invented this term asset framing, which is basically saying in order for us to thrive as human beings, we have to stop looking at our lives and at ourselves from, the, from a point of view of deficiency, right, of what we lack. And, and you know, they, they discuss how, you know, implicit bias, for example, you know, is based on this and, and what he calls pattern forming, right? If, if the, the mind is immediately making patterns, he says it happens so fast, it's, it's faster than thought. It's at the level of the nervous system. And so, so in order to understand a people, let's say a group of people, I'm going to fit them into a certain pattern. And then if I continue to reinforce that pattern, then that is how I see them over time. That is how I speak about them over time. That is how I act towards them over time. And they were saying, you know, how, for example, you know, describing communities of color as at risk, impoverished, et cetera, et cetera, how this, this language is simply reinforcing this, I guess the, the opposite of asset framing would be deficiency framing. And the nice thing is Ocean Vuong basically was saying the same thing. He says, the language that we used to create, he was talking about creative expression. He says, it's all about death. You know, I killed this. Um, I don't remember the other examples right now. I, I knocked it out of the park. I, um, you know, how, how many of our, of our metaphors, especially for success, have to do with violence, are tied to violence. And he says, this matters. This matters that this is our language. What does it say about us as a culture? that, that this, these acts of creation are brought into being from so much violence and destruction. And what Shorters was saying is that a good, a good hacker, a good technologist understands that to hack something well, you have to understand the system well enough to make it do something it wasn't designed to do. And then I thought, oh, well, the human mind. The human mind is designed, it seems, from an evolutionary perspective, to discriminate, right? We've talked about this. To be able to tell friend from foe, mate from food. And so much of what we're doing here is to find a way to use mind to transcend mind. At least the mind that says this and that, sky and earth, me and you. And to get to a place where we see sky as earth and we see me as you, which Uchiyama speaks of. And Shorter says, you know, this is what we need to do to magnify humanity. I would hum humbly say that it is what we need to magnify our view, because humanity is already magnified. It's already 
it's already at capacity. We just don't use it. We just don't use that capacity. And I would just, I would just love, love it. If you, every time you approach your cushion, you thought to yourself, I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what my body and mind will show me. And, and, and you know, speaking of the cushion itself, that it, in, instead, of, instead of seeing it as a piece of fabric, piece of stuffed fabric, you, you, you saw it as a portal. into another realm, which is not different from this one, but it's not the same. And if we could see that this is how it really is, I mean, meditation retreats would be packed. We wouldn't have to sell them. You know, people would be signing up for Sashin left and right. I think that it's like the best kept, not secret. You know, it's just hiding there in plain sight. And instead, you know, people spend hundreds of dollars to do ayahuasca and that get the quick hit. And maybe you get to the same place. I don't know, not having done it. I just, being a little prejudiced, feel there's a way that lasts. that shows you a whole world being born right here in this moment and dying and being born again. I mean, imagine the possibilities or the impossibilities. So instead of thinking, right, I have to, I have to get in, you know, my 10 minutes of sitting today or half an hour, or my hour, Oh, today I'm really distracted, I'm really scattered. To approach it with that kind of wonder. Understanding that with that breath that I just took, my world was born. And as I exhale, the world died. And now it's being born again. Only when you thoroughly understand this will everything in the world settle as the self pervading all things. As Buddhists, this is our vow or the direction we face. In other words, we vow to save all sentient beings so that this self may become even more itself. Uchiyama. We vow to do the impossible, to let go of this self and everything else that gets in the way so that this self can become more itself. And this is liberation. I mean, it's really so that you can become more you. And wouldn't that be nice? Like you unbound. 
And then if we just if we just bring all those threads together, there's that quote he says at the at the end, you are within me and I'm just facing myself. Because in other words, you exist within myself, and it is to that you that I direct myself. That is what vow is. To direct ourselves to the many yous in me. And to know, as we do that, that we are facing ourselves. And so, you know, we can choose to work in the world, right? Those of you who teach, those of you who work with people touching their bodies to change the world from the outside in. And then we're also changing the world from the inside out, right? And both, both are needed. But I think the most important thing is understanding that we're actually, we're never failing to face ourselves. Right, that, that anger and jealousy and self-doubt, mistrust, hatred are only possible in separation. They're only possible when I'm separate from me and I'm separate from you. But when I, when I step back, when I look around, when I measure what everyone else is doing, everyone else has, when I focus on what I don't have, what may be taken away from me, what I can get and what I need to protect, what I need to keep, the possible takes over and it is not liberating. So let me end with this. This poem is called A National Anthem, A New National Anthem by Ada Limon. That song, that's our birthright, that's sung in silence when it's too hard to go on, that sounds like someone's rough fingers weaving into another's, that sounds like a match being lit in an endless cave, the song that says, My bones are your bones and your bones are my bones. And isn't that enough? For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.